Good morning and welcome to my church. We are glad that you are here for week two of Brave. If you're coming here as a visitor the first time, you are coming in the middle of our first ever series in six years designed with a woman, particularly with a woman in mind. So men, don't check out. There'll be something in it for you, but we are specifically targeting your ladies and targeting passages of the Bible where God called a woman to do something brave. So it is also my first time to ever get to share with you two weeks in a row back to back. So I just want to say up front, the funny guy will be back next week. Okay, so y'all come back. Um, But ladies, I am very excited about the place that I think God is calling us to, the steps that he's calling us to. Last week, we talked about the Proverbs 31 woman, and we decided that that woman and all those amazing things that she was, she didn't really exist. We named her Jesus because nobody could ever be all of those things. Practically speaking, this side of heaven, we will never be those things. But we also said that in Christ, positionally, you are all of those things. They were put into you at creation. And when you accept what Christ did on the cross for you, God sees you as that woman right now. And someday in eternity, you will do all of those things and it will be effortless. And we asked you to just trade your not enough in for his enough. And that was a really awesome deal. And then we said, okay, now that you have the good deal, the brave step comes when you take the grace that you've received and then you turn around and you extend that grace into your most difficult relationships here on earth, whether that's your mother-in-law or your sister, or your friend, or your husband, or whoever that is, you extend that same grace. So that was the brave step. This week, we are going to talk about a woman. She is actually the very first woman in the Bible, if you start at the very first page and go through, who we have an in-depth, detailed account of her experience, her encounter with God. And she didn't have all the benefits we have of having the whole book. She didn't have all the benefits of all the stories of all the women who had come before her. So it would have been possibly very easy for her to get an incorrect view of God. I don't think that's different today. It's easy for some of us to get a a snapshot or a soundbite of like grandma's God was thou shalt not this, thou shalt not that, thou shalt, and that's the only soundbite we have of God and so we don't really like him. Or our snapshot of God was some church that we went to where we got our feelings heard and they didn't have a rock and roll loud band and you know we didn't like it or whatever. Um, Or our, our snapshot of God is through our own lens of our tragedy or what we've seen in the world or war or hardship. And so, you know, we we kind of have this view of God that maybe isn't the whole picture. And what I love today about this woman we're going to talk about is we don't just get a snapshot. We get her face-to-face experience and encounter. Because until you have come face-to-face and experience personally, it's kind of not fair, right, to make a judgment. I mean, we wouldn't want somebody to do that about us, would we? I remember a few years ago, my oldest daughter, she was um, emerging from middle school, or not middle school, but elementary school. She was a fifth grader. And so as a family, we were emerging from like Barney and the Disney Channel to pop culture for the first time. Well, not really the first time. See, what kids don't realize is that before they came along, we were awesome as parents and we were super cool, right? They are the reason that we quit listening to the top 40 list and we started listening to Barney all the time. 
So we are, you know, in this season of life, and we also, at the same time, we were about to move to a new neighborhood, and we were going to live in, like, the end of the cul-de-sac house with two houses on either side of us, and I had heard that they were friends, and I'm like, oh, boy, I better scope this out. I better spy this out because I'm moving between two women who are friends. I want to know if this is going to be a good thing or a bad thing, right? So I met one. She was super sweet. The other one I had not had a chance to meet, and I this was, like, pre-Instagram days, okay? I would have just checked her out on Instagram. It was even pre, before all the moms flooded Facebook and all the kids fled to Instagram. So I had to do some good old, old-fashioned spying, all right? I pulled out the elementary school yearbook. Yes, I did. And I looked up the names of their daughters because I told Allie, my daughter, I said, Allie, there's one girl a year older than you, one a year younger. These are going to be your friends. We need to know who these people are. It's going to be awesome. I've heard they're awesome. So I I look in the yearbook, I look up their name, and lucky me, that year the parents had taken out one of those dedication pages, you know, parents, um, tell your kids now, I will do that once, we're not doing it every year, okay, Um, where you get to pay extra for the whole page to be all about them, it's just not good for them, you just only need to do that once. Um, So I go to the dedication page, and there is like this cute little girl, my neighbor girl, with, it had to be her teacher, looked like a teacher in a classroom. So I'm like, oh, that's her teacher. And then there were like 14 other pictures. I'm talking every possible angle of the cute little girl and the most beautiful, cute, rock star looking, 20 something looking mama. I'm like, crud, I got to live next to the rock star mom. I mean, like I got to go to the mailbox every morning in my pajamas and no makeup and cute little 20 something in her, you know, blonde hair is going to be bebopping to the mailbox. And don't we do this women? We immediately like size up the woman next to us. And am I good enough? And how do I compare to her? And so I started to develop this theory that probably the real mom, because she'd had four kids, the real mom was probably locked in the attic like Jane Eyre. And this was like the live-in nanny, okay, this cute little blonde mom. So anyways, I I struggled with that for a few months, and then I showed Allie one day. I'm like, this is going to be our neighbor. See how cute she is, and look at her mom. Oh, my gosh, look at her mom. Her mom is so cute. And Allie goes, Mom, that is not her mom. I said, how do you know? Have you met her personally? She goes, no, Mom, but that is not her mom. I know because that is Taylor Swift. And evidently, the girls had won backstage passes to go meet Taylor Swift. And right before the mom did the dedication page, they took all 14 pictures with her. And I just jumped to the conclusion, (laughs) if I'm paying for the page, I'm putting my best pictures (laughs) on the page too. So the point is, until you have had a personal experience and a personal encounter with God. We cannot judge him from just a snapshot or 14 snapshots in my case of him without having that personal experience and that personal encounter. So today we are going to get to glimpse into God preserved two whole chapters in the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis. He preserved the thoughts of a woman's heart and her personal encounter with him. And she's the very first woman in human history that we have that preserved for us. And I like to think the reason is, is because she must have had a very accurate view 
of who God was. And so he preserved it for 4,000 years so that we could look at it today. Isn't that exciting? All right, I'm going to ask you to turn to Genesis chapter 16 and hold your spot there. If you have a Bible or you have a smartphone, I'd love for you to literally, there's so much in these words for us women. That's why God saved them for us. While you're doing that, I just want to kind of frame this up because we do have the benefit of having the whole picture and having the Old Testament and the New Testament. So I'm going to pull a verse out of the New Testament that I think is a truth that provides a framework for us. It is Romans 8, 28. This is a verse, ladies. This is one we got to write down, write it on your mirror, you know, plaster it in your car. This is one that you're going to have to take out of your back pocket from time to time. When your kids have tough questions, when stuff doesn't go your way, this is one of those verses we've got to have at our fingertips. Would you read it with me? Romans 8, 28 says, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Notice that it says all things. It doesn't say that the good things work together for good. It doesn't say that the God things work together for good, like the stuff God orchestrates. All things. That means the mistakes that we make, the detours that we make, the mistakes that other people make that affect us. See, for years and years, I had this incorrect view of God, and it came from my snapshot from my early childhood experience where I thought I could mess up God's plan for my life. I lived in fear every decision I made. If I don't make the right decision, I could mess up the whole rest of the plan. Or if Jeff doesn't make the right decision, he can mess up God's plan for my life, right? But this scripture says that all things work together for good for those who love him. See, before there was GPS, there was God. Actually, last night I was lost in Atlanta, and I was, Jeff was trying to call me, and I was texting him, I need GPS, like I can't talk, and it accidentally said, I need God. I need him too. But um, before there was GPS, there was God. And you know what, how GPS does, like when you take a detour? What does it say to you? It says rerouting, rerouting. The same is true with God. It's like he has this big blue line, this plan with an arrow for our life to work all things together for good. But even if we get off on the wrong exit, we take a detour, you get kicked off the road by another car. He is always in the process of rerouting us. Sometimes he chooses the detour for us. He will reroute us just to show us or perhaps to pick somebody else up and bring them on the path of working all things together for good. So this girl, Hagar, that we're going to talk about today, she did not have the privilege of having Romans 8, 28, but we do. But the picture that she gets of God, what God does in her life shows that this is true. And what happened in the Old Testament and what happened in the New Testament and what's happening today in your life, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, all right? Will you pray with me and then we'll get started with her story. Heavenly Father, we come to you in this moment and we ask you that in the next 30 minutes, you would help us to have an accurate picture of who you are. And then, God, you would help us to take some brave steps toward whatever it is that you may call us to do in the next 30 minutes. We thank you so much that you preserved this woman's story for us. So speak to us, Lord, in these next few minutes. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. You're at Genesis 16. 
I'm going to give you just a little bit of backstory on this, all right? Because this, this woman, Hagar, it would have been very easy for her to have the wrong picture of God. You just think about history. If you ever read the Bible from the beginning, if you ever do that, you have this woman, Eve, and she makes a mistake. She eats an apple. She gets kicked out of paradise. And then she has contractions and 24-hour labors and this cycle every month that turns her into a bear, okay? So you could see that they didn't write this down back then. If that was just passed on, oh my goodness, don't eat the apples. I mean, you just won't believe what will happen, what God will do to you. Now, Eve personally, I think Eve had a different personal experience. I mean, just from the fact that she tried to clothe herself in fig leaves and God gave her a fur coat, I think she learned that, you know, God had something special in mind for her. But the oral tradition could have been twisted or lost. And then you get to the flood a few pages into Genesis and like everybody's wiped out except for Noah and his wife, who had to be really brave because she got on that boat for a year with a bunch of stinking animals. I have two dogs in my house that have almost destroyed my house. I cannot imagine living on a houseboat with a bunch of animals for a year. So, you know, you got to give this woman props because it's not like she had other women to turn to. Do you guys do this? Like something happens, some weird bump appears on your face, and before you call the doctor, you call your girlfriend have you ever had this happen to you? What's happening? You know, we, we rely on each other's stories, don't we? And so we have a woman who probably had very little to go off of, and yet she is able to come up with a very accurate picture of God because she has a personal face-to-face experience with him. So history is happening, and humankind, we are always having a tendency to stray from God and God's having to pull us back. That's why our mission statement around here is helping people find their way back from God. It's been happening from the beginning of time. God's been doing that. And so finally God says, all right, it is time for me to pick out a human being and have a personal relationship with that human being and his family. In fact, I'm going to turn them into a great nation and they're going to get to know who I am and I'm going to get to know them personally and they will be my people and I will be their God and we're going to write this history down so the world will know about it. And that is when God chose a man named Abraham And he said, Abraham, I'm about to bless you. I'm about to make you into a great nation and all the people on the world are going to be blessed through you. God makes this promise to him. I think he's still doing that today. He wants to bless you. He wants to connect with you so that you can help others connect with him. So he makes this grand, awesome, first time in history promise to a man named Abraham. And 10 verses later, life happens. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 10, you don't have to go there. It's going to be on the screen. It says, at that time, a severe famine struck the land of Canaan, forcing Abraham to go down to Egypt where he lived as a foreigner. Now, just reading the language, it sounds like this was a God-induced detour, all right? We don't make famines happen. Well, I do in my house when I forget to go grocery shopping, but for the most part, God makes those happen, right? He forced this famine, which made Abraham have to go out of his way to Egypt. And I don't know about you ladies, but I tend to think that everything happens uh, because the world revolves around me. And so I like to think that God made this famine happen so that 
Abraham had to go out of his way just to pick up this woman, Hagar. He goes down to Egypt, and Abraham's wife is beautiful, and he says, listen, we got to have a talk before you meet the king down there. He's going to want you to be his wife because you're so beautiful. So let's just tell a little white lie. Say you're my sister. You sort of are. They married their relatives back then. And um, that way he won't kill me and I get to live. Okay. So they tell this lie and God curses the land of Egypt and Pharaoh somehow figures out it's because he's been tricked. And so he tells Abraham, take your wife and take your stuff and get out of here. And oh, by the way, I'm going to give you a bunch of stuff to go with you. In verse 16, it says that Pharaoh gave Abram many gifts because of her. Sheep, goats, cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants and camels. And Abraham leaves now with a bunch of stuff and a bunch of new people, a bunch of servants. And one of them is a woman named Hagar. Well, chapter 15 comes. And in chapter 15, some time has passed since Abraham has been given this promise. And he does what many of us do. He starts to second guess. God, did I hear you right? God, was that even you? Or did I just, you know, eat too much pizza last night? What, was that really you? What am I supposed to do? And God comes back and Abraham says, maybe, maybe you meant to get, use my servant, God. Why don't you use my servant, Eleazar? You can make a great nation through him because Sarah and I, we aren't having any kids, if you haven't noticed. And it's been a few years. And God says to Abraham, no, I do not want to use your servant, Abraham. I made the promise to you. I want to use you. And then he says to him three words that are awesome. He says, no for certain that I'm going to keep my promise. And this is how I'm going to prove it to you, Abraham. In those days, they had a tradition. When you made a promise to somebody else, you did this really strange ceremony that makes no sense in our culture, but this is what they did in theirs, all right? They took a bunch of animals. They cut them in half. Guys, this part's for you. This is so exciting. Cut them in half. You put half on one side, half on the other side. And then the two people making the promise, they would hold hands and they would walk through the middle of the divided dead animals as if to say, we are swearing on our blood, literally to each other, that we're going to keep this promise. Only this time, what God does when he makes the promise to Abraham is he puts, the scripture says he puts Abraham in a deep sleep, deep, deep sleep. And while Abraham is asleep, God comes down in the form of fire and he, whoosh, he passes through both sides of the animals. As if to say, Abraham, I am making this promise to you and I am going to keep my half And guess what, Abraham? I'm going to keep your half, too. All you, you just stay asleep. All you need to do is believe. That is your job. Your job is to believe. My job is to make everything else work out for your good. Abraham wakes up, and he says in verse 6, it says, Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord credited it to him as righteousness. God's saying, Abraham, I have a plan for you. I'm going to work all things out together for good. All things. Not just the good things, not just the God things, but all things. And here's how this deal is going to work. Your job is to believe that I can. My job is to make everything work out for good. That is my job. All right? 
Now, I don't know. I can only imagine if you had an experience like that, you would probably share it. We don't know for sure whether Hagar had heard about that experience or not, but we know that God was revealing himself to his family, and this is how he chose to reveal himself as the one who makes the promise and also the one who keeps the promise. And so then we get to chapter 16, which is where our girl comes into the picture. In chapter 16, it has now been 10 years 10 years since God made this promise to Abraham and said, I'm going to make you into this great nation. You're going to have all these kids. And guess what? He still has no kids. I don't know about you, but 10 years is a long time. The older you get, the shorter it gets. But that's still a decade to wait on God to fulfill a promise is a little while. So Sarah gets a little nervous, Abraham's wife. And Sarah says, Look, Abraham, I haven't been able to have kids. Chapter 16, verse 1. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had not been able to bear children for him, but she had an Egyptian servant named Hagar. Remember the famine? They had to go get her. So Sarah said to Abraham, the Lord has prevented me from having kids. Ladies, we're great at this. We are so great at passing the blame. God has stopped me from having kids. Why don't you go and sleep with my servant? That'll make it all better. And perhaps I can have children through her. And it says that Abraham agreed, or he caved, with Sarah's proposal. So Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian servant, and gave her to Abraham as his wife. Just pause for a minute. I want you to just, like, close your eyes and imagine you are Hagar. You are hundreds of miles away from your home. At some point, you stopped having parents. I don't know when. Somehow you became a slave, a servant. Your life is not your own. Your future is not your own. You don't own anything. You have no way of providing for yourself. You have no dream of ever having a family or grandkids or anybody ever even remembering who you were. You are unnoticed. You are unwanted. Even Abraham and Sarah, who were God-fearing people, they don't even call her by name. They call her my servant. And so my servant gets given to Abraham, and she becomes pregnant. And when she finds out she's pregnant, verse 4 tells us she starts to treat her mistress Sarah with contempt. I'm able to do something you're not able to do. And because Hagar is Sarah's property, Hagar's child is going to be Sarah's property also. So she has all the hormones, all the cravings, all the trouble that you go through to have a baby, and it's not even going to be hers. It's going to belong to Sarah. So Sarah says to Abraham, I love this. This is the best girl sentence in all the Bible. Verse 5, she says, this is all your fault. I put my servant in your arms like I did it, but it's your fault. Isn't that awesome, women? You know, I burned dinner, but it's your fault. Um, Now she's pregnant, and she treats me with contempt. The Lord's going to show who's wrong, you or me. And poor Abraham's like, look, I just did what you told me to do. She's your servant. Deal with her however you see fit. And verse 6 says that Sarah treated Hagar so harshly, she finally ran away. Now Hagar is getting derailed by being mistreated by the only person she has hope of showing her kindness. 
She's far away from her family. They eat weird food. They talk weird. Nobody calls her by name. For all practical purposes, she's been almost sexually abused and mistreated and used. They just want to use her body to get an heir. And so Hagar, probably having no hope, she runs away. And verse 7 gives us our very first encounter with the God of the universe and a woman on planet earth that we have recorded in detail. Verse 7 says, the angel of the Lord found Hagar. I love the word found because you might think you're looking for him, but I can promise you this. He has been looking for you longer. He finds us whether we're on the right path or whether we're we're derailed because someone's mistreated us or whether we just chose to take the wrong detour. He goes after you. He pursues you and he finds you. And when he does, ladies, notice what he does. He looks at her and he says, Hagar, he calls her by name. See, nobody else called her by her name, but God knew her name And the very first word out of his mouth is, how could you be so stupid? Why did you do this to your mistress? Are are you crazy? You're a servant. No, he calls her by name. And then the second thing he does is he asks a question. Our relationships would benefit greatly from this. (laughs) If we could learn to just start with their name, ask a question before we accuse. God calls her by name and he says, Hagar, Sarah's servant, where have you come from? And where are you going? See, nobody had ever stopped to ask her her story before. Where have you come from, Hagar? Where's home for you? What was it like? What are your memories? What happened? And Hagar, where are you going? I care about your past, where you've come from, and I care about your future, where you are going. Now, I like to pause right here and just say to the men in the room, this is probably the greatest takeaway you will ever have from church, all right? This right here, what just happened in this sentence is why we love Matthew McConaughey, okay? It is not because of what he looks like, and I know, Jeff tells me all the time, he is short, and he doesn't wear deodorant, and he's weird, but the reason we are in love with him is because He stops, holds the girl by her face, looks in her eyes. See, we don't care what you look like. We just want you to notice us. He calls her by name, and he asks her a question. And then you have to be prepared to be stuck for about 30 minutes while she answers that question. (laughs) They don't show that part in the movies. He asks her the question. If you do that, we're going to talk, okay? And then at the end, he says, everything's going to be okay, all right? So it's not the guy. It's just his approach. When God comes to Hagar and he has made her, he has created in her this need, this desire to be noticed, to be understood, to be listened to. He comes and asks her a question and she says, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarah. And then the angel of the Lord says to her, and this is where the brave part comes in. He says, return to your mistress, and submit to her authority. Now, I don't have a lot of time to go in depth into this. I just felt like as I was preparing this that that God just laid on my heart 
somebody is going to be here that I don't know how God detoured you to, to get here this morning, but you're going to need to hear those words. I understand you. I care about where you came from. I care about where you're going, but I need you to trust me, and I need you to return to your impossible situation. I need you to go back to that mess. I need you to submit. Your job is to believe. My job is to work all of this out for your good. I can do that for you. The angel also said, you're now pregnant and you'll give birth to a son. Verse 11, you are to name him Ishmael, which means God hears. Doesn't that make you smile? I saw like 20 of you women just smile. God hears you. For the Lord has heard your cry of distress. This son of yours, he'll be a wild man as untamed as a wild donkey. He'll raise his fist against everyone and everyone will be against him. And that does not sound like how I want my son to be. But all I can imagine is God knew her exactly. He made her and maybe she needed a son to defend her. I don't know. But I think when he spoke those words, it was like water to her soul. It was exactly what she needed. And in verse 13... We get the verse where the very first woman in history has a personal encounter with God, and she tells us what she experienced. The first time, as far as I know, the only time that a woman gets to give God a name, it is a servant who is abused and running away because she's pregnant and hormonal, and she meets God face to face, and this is what she says about him. She says, I'm going to have to give you another name. I've had an incorrect picture of who you are, God. You are the God who sees me. You hear me, God, but more than that, you you see me. See, nobody's ever noticed me. Nobody knows what I do day in and day out. But you see, God. She calls him by the name El Roy which means you are the God who sees. Do you know that God sees you? I know there's times it feels like you're invisible and nobody sees what you do and nobody cares or you've been passed over or, you know, you're doing laundry for the 400 millionth time and nobody says thank you. God sees that. He sees and he has a plan to work all things together for your good. The good things, the God things, the mistakes, the detours, all of that, he can work for your good. And so Hagar does a very brave, bold move. She goes back. She submits to her owners who are mistreating her. And she has a son, and he gets to be about 12 years old. And we don't know a lot of what happened, but we know that Abraham loved that son. And in verse 21, I love this or chapter 21, um, you can only imagine two women living under the same roof and the rivalry that would go on. And so Hagar has this amazing experience and she meets God face to face. But if you're Sarah, how are you feeling? It has now been 23 years since God said he was going to give you a son. And you are waiting for that promise that Abraham keeps saying, don't worry, Sarah, you just believe. Your job is to believe God's going to make it all work out. It's been 23 years. And God doesn't just bless Hagar. 
he also remembers Sarah. And chapter 21 starts this way. It says, the Lord kept his word, and he did for Sarah exactly what he had promised. She became pregnant, and she gave birth to a son for Abraham in his old age. And this happened at just the right time that God said it would. See, there are many things that God has planned for us, but if he gave them to us now, we might mess it up. We might not know it was from him. One of my favorite statements is, there's a lot of things God wants to give you, but until you pray for them and ask for them, he can't give them to you because you won't know they came from him. There are many things that he has planned for you, and at just the right time, he will do his part of making everything work out for your good. But sometimes we can't go there until he does some stuff in us personally. So Sarah has a son, and they're so happy. And when he gets to the age where they are weaning him and they're about to have this feast, Ishmael does what any 13-year-old kid would do naturally. He makes fun of the baby. And boy, this burns Sarah. She is not having it. She goes to Abraham and says, I will not share my son with this other woman. He will not share his inheritance. You got to do something. You got to get rid of them. And Abraham is very upset in verse 11. It says, because Ishmael was his son too. But God told Abraham, don't be upset over the boy. Do whatever Sarah tells you. For your son Isaac is the one through whom your descendants will be counted. But I will also make a nation of the descendants of Hagar's son because he is your son too. Now I just want to pause for just a second. Any of you who pay attention to the Middle East at all, if you trace the trouble that we've had there for centuries, it goes back to this story. See, all the people fighting over there, one claims their right is through Ishmael, and one claims their right is through Isaac. And for years and years and years, I would read this passage, and because I had an inaccurate snapshot of who God was, I blamed Sarah. And I put pressure on moms. Moms, you better watch out what decisions you make, because for generations, they'll be paying for it if you don't make the right one. And whoa, that is pressure. But when I read this passage, I read that, no, God chose to let Hagar's son Ishmael also be made into a nation. I don't know why. I don't know how to answer my kids when they say, why in the world would God allow ISIS and not stop things like that? I don't know how to answer that other than to say that I do know that God works all things together for good for those who love him. And you can trust him that somehow, whether he chose this or he allowed it or it was somebody's mistake or it was Sarah's fault or it was Abraham's fault or it's the fault of the people who've blown it and distorted it today, I don't know. But I do know that Romans 8.28 is true and all things work together for good. And what if God even lets the bad stuff happen? Because somehow, for some person, like a Hagar, there is going to be mercy for a family 
or a people in that bad stuff where they get to know God and connect to him. I don't know. I don't understand it. Can you imagine being God and everybody's getting off of the GPS track and recalculating, recalculating? Recal- I mean, how do you take the whole world and recalculate the whole world and cause good to happen? Only God can do that. So Abraham gets up early the next morning, verse 14 says, and he gives them some water and some food and he straps it on Hagar's shoulders. She's got the weight of the world on her shoulders. She doesn't know how she's going to provide the next meal for her son, much less provide for college and find him a wife and all of that stuff we feel pressured to do. And he sends her away and it says she wandered aimlessly in the wilderness of Beersheba. Ladies, there is life in every single word of the scripture. There's life in every single word of this story. And the first couple times I just read over that and I thought, I just wonder what Beersheba means. I'd love to look it up. You Google Beersheba and you know what it means? It means the well of the oath, the well of the promise. Hagar, you're circling You're circling Beersheba. You're circling the promise. I know you feel lost. I know you feel like you're wandering. But remember that story Abraham told you? You just have to believe, and I'm going to make all things work together for good. Just keep circling the promise, Hagar. I'm not done with you yet. And it says that when the water ran out, she put the boy in the shade, and then she went and sat down by herself. And she does what we women do best. She burst into tears. Verse 17 says, God heard the boy crying and the angel of the Lord calls to Hagar. And again, he calls her by name. He says, Hagar. And then he asks her a question. What's wrong? Don't be afraid. I have heard the boy crying. Go to him and comfort him for I will make him into a great nation from his descendants. Then God opened Hagar's eyes, and all of a sudden, the woman who knew God as the God who sees her, she herself is able to see that her situation is not a cup half empty. She saw a well full of water. She quickly filled her water container and gave the boy a drink. And verse 20 says a phrase that, guys, this is for you. See, Hagar needed a God who heard her and saw her. But verse 20, there's a phrase that says, and God was with the boy. And he grew up in the wilderness, and he became a skillful archer. See, because you men, you're going to go out there, and you're going to fight battles for your family. You're going to fight spiritual battles. You're going to fight physical battles, and you need to know that your correct picture of God is that he is with you, even when it feels like you are all alone. Even when it feels like nobody understands the price you pay and the sacrifices you make, he is with you. And it says in verse 21 that they settled in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother arranged for him to marry a woman from the land of Egypt. I can't think of a better ending for a mother's life than to get to arrange a marriage with a woman you like for your son from your hometown. Come on, girls. All things work together for good. Not just the good things, not just the God things. And while you are waiting for them to work together for good, he hears you and he 
sees you. But he's calling us to be brave and to believe. Our part is to believe. His part is to make all things work together for good. Let's pray. God in heaven, I pray today that for somebody here, they would know for certain that you are going to take this season of life and you are going to work it for good. God, for somebody here, they know that. They've seen it. God, I pray that they would tell their story. I pray as women, we'd quit giving our opinion all the time and we start sharing our stories of your faithfulness. We love you, Jesus. Thank you so much for being exactly what we need at just the right time. In your name we pray, amen.